Welcome to the Healthful Woman Podcast, the fastest growing podcast in women's health. Today's Monday, February 28th, 2022. Sherry Gelber joins me today to talk about vaccines in pregnancy. It's not just COVID. In the past year, the COVID vaccine has become a hot topic, both in general and in pregnancy. One of the nice things about that is it got a lot of people talking about vaccines in general, and I think people understand vaccines a lot more now than ever. So we thought it would be a cool idea to do a refresher podcast on vaccines in pregnancy. Sherry and I are going to cover all the vaccines we do and do not recommend in pregnancy and why. We're going to start with a brief overview about vaccines and then talk about specific ones. Flu, Tdap, COVID, measles, mumps, rubella, varicella, and more. Something for everyone. All right. Thanks for listening. Have a great day. And we'll see you Thursday on High Risk Birth Stories. Welcome to today's episode of Healthful Woman, a podcast designed to explore topics in women's health at all stages of life. I'm your host, Dr. Nathan Fox, an OBGYN and maternal fetal medicine specialist practicing in New York City. At Healthful Woman, I speak with leaders in the field to help you learn more about women's health, pregnancy, and wellness. All right, Dr. Gelber, Sherry, welcome back to the podcast. How you doing? I'm great. Thanks for having me. So when I gave you uh, some potential topics to talk about, you pounced all over vaccines and pregnancy. It was of great excitement to you to talk about this topic. So I'm curious why. Because vaccines are easy. There's lots of safety data. They save lives. They save mothers' lives. They save babies' lives. They save our neighbors' lives. And we have lots of safety data. And we don't really have any concerns about any of the uh, recommended vaccines in pregnancy. Yeah, I think that vaccines have gotten a lot of attention recently, obviously, because of COVID and the COVID vaccine. Unfortunately, with the COVID vaccine, it's become quite contentious, uh, which is really odd, I would say, because prior to this, there was some level of it with other vaccines, but it was really, really, I don't know, beneath the surface. It was kind of a small amount and it was like a very you know small minority of people who had a hard time with vaccines and were opposed to it. And okay, like whatever, no one's going to be 100, you're not getting 100% of people on board. But I think that unfortunately, because of a hundred reasons, the COVID vaccine has made the conversation about vaccines much more difficult. But on the other hand, I think it's also raised a lot of people's awareness about vaccines in general, which I would say is good news. Yes. I mean, I think with COVID at the beginning, people were saying, I don't know anything about this. We don't have any data in pregnant women. And how can we know it's safe? And that was all true. We didn't have any data. Pregnant women were excluded from the original trials, which, you know, you can argue both ways. Like, if it hadn't worked, then you would have been putting women and their fetuses at risk of something that wasn't helpful. So it makes sense to exclude them. But then when it was rolled out, we couldn't give patients the reassurance that it was safe. Interestingly, because I think they really wanted protection, some of the first people to jump at the chance to get COVID vaccines were pregnant healthcare workers. And a lot of the safety data came from them at the beginning. But now these vaccines have been around for a year and we really do have data like we have information on people who were vaccinated in the first trimester, the second trimester, the third trimester and pregnancy outcomes. 
yeah, it's true that at the very beginning, again, we were discussing this at the time when they were doing this, there's always this debate with something that's new, whether it's a medication, a vaccine, a treatment. Do you enroll pregnant women? Do you enroll children or do you not? And the argument in, in favor of doing it is, well, we need answers in this group. Like, you know, we need to know about pregnant women and we need to know about children. And the argument against it is, well, if there's risk, now we're not just exposing these adult volunteers who understand there might be risk when they enroll for the study. We're also now, you know, putting risk potentially on their, you know, fetuses, their children, or if you're enrolling children on these, you know, they're not really consenting for themselves as their parents. It becomes, you know, ethically complex and it becomes logistically complex and just a lot of arguments. So sort of the cleaner thing when you're running this study is just exclude all those all those people, but then you don't get the answers you want. And that's why there's this argument back and forth. But like what you said was so fascinating, they didn't include pregnant women, but the healthcare workers are like, I want this because I, you know, I'm exposed all the time to COVID. And sort of conceptually, since the vaccine wasn't a live vaccine, and we'll talk about what that means, the thought was, well, we don't expect it to be harmful, right? Just because from prior vaccines, it should behave similarly to that. And they're like, all right, we're willing to take that risk because I don't want to get COVID when I'm pregnant either. Right. And at the beginning, you know, for every individual, before you do anything, you're sort of making a mental calculus. What's the risk of this thing? What's the benefit of this thing? You know, and how do I weigh those things? So right at the beginning, the benefit was it was going to protect you from COVID. The risk was we didn't know if there could be effects. Like based on the science, we didn't think there would be fetal effects, but we didn't know. And so it became a matter of, well, how likely am I going to get exposed to COVID? And for healthcare workers, they were out there every day. For people who worked in supermarkets, you know, for all the essential employees, we felt like the benefit of the vaccine outweighed the risk because the risk of the disease was so bad. For people who were staying at home right at the beginning, you know, if they weren't getting exposed to anything, they might not have needed vaccine. But now almost everyone is out and about. Things have really opened up because of the vaccine, but it makes it much harder for people to remain unvaccinated and stay safe from COVID. Yeah, I remember when this was all first starting with the vaccines and I was having conversations, I would say the majority of people, at least in my life personally and also professionally, were sort of in favor of getting vaccinated and they were looking for a reason to get vaccinated. Uh, you know, is it safe? Is it safe? I really want to do it. I just want to make sure it's safe. And then there was a subset of people who were really just, I, I want nothing to do with this vaccine either ever or at least let's wait a year or two or let's wait whatever. And for them, I was like, well, you really have two choices. Are you comfortable like staying hunkered down in your basement with a mask on for the next six months to a year? And if so, then yeah, like you probably don't need a vaccine because you're not going to get exposed to COVID. Uh, and that's what we found at the beginning, that people who were really, you know, not around other people didn't get the didn't get the virus. However, if you are going to be out and about or let's say your work is making you come back or you, you know, have family members you have to see or whatever it is, it's really unlikely you're going to be able to avoid getting this virus. Uh, and so then you have to sort of weigh those uh, against each other. And like you said, nowadays, there's so few people who are still able or willing to completely isolate from everybody else. And so they're weighing this very minuscule risk of a vaccine versus, yeah, I'm going to get COVID. Yes. And, I, you know, it's 
hard in pregnancy because pregnant women oftentimes don't want to put anything in their body, like even if we know it's safe. Like, you know, I've argued with patients about Tylenol. Like they have a fever because they have the flu. I'm like, take some Tylenol. I don't want to take medication. So if someone's not going to take Tylenol, it makes sense that they don't want to take a vaccine. But this idea that you have to be hypervigilant in pregnancy and that you shouldn't put anything into your body may be not the most helpful thing in the setting of a pandemic. Yeah. So I, I want to take a step back since, again, COVID brought this all to the forefront, but We've been talking about vaccines and pregnancy for many years, well before COVID, uh, not regarding COVID specifically. And I wanted to talk about vaccination in general, you know, how they work, what's the difference between a live virus and an inactivated virus, and then sort of the principles in pregnancy, and then go through each of the individual vaccines that we do and don't recommend in pregnancy, uh, just sort of as an overview. We will put COVID in that conversation, but this is meant to be more broader discussion. So how do you explain to people who maybe just don't understand vaccines or never learned about them, how do they work? So vaccines work to some extent the same way that disease works to give you, to prevent you from getting the same things over and over again. So back in the day when people got chickenpox or people got measles, typically they would only get it once, like you got it. And then you wouldn't get it again in your life because your body would make antibodies. And then if you got exposed to, they would sort of, these cells would have memory that they had seen that. And then when they got exposed to the virus again, your immune system would pump out these antibodies and kill the virus. Vaccines work by exposing the body to things to make it think there's disease. So in a live vaccine, it takes whatever the virus is, but inactivates it. So it looks like the disease virus, like measles, but it can't replicate. It can't make people sick, but it confuses the immune system so it can make antibodies. You can have recombinant viruses like hepatitis B, where we've just made some protein that looks like hepatitis B and the body makes antibodies to that. It gets exposed to it. Your immune system says there's a foreign thing. I'm going to make antibodies to get rid of it. And then it retains what we call immune memory. And then the COVID vaccine was a little bit new because it wasn't the virus that was going in. It was this RNA that was getting our own bodies to create the protein, one of the proteins, and then our body would create antibodies against it. So it was more similar to this recombinant vaccine where it's just a protein. But the interesting part was instead of producing the recombinant you know, protein or vaccine in a lab, it was produced in our own bodies. We sort of you know, outsourced the production of this vaccine to our own bodies, which is really uh, an interesting way and a very efficient way to do it, actually, which is part of the reason the vaccine was so seemed to be useful, seemed to really work. Yeah, it's an amazing way to do things. And I think a lot of people felt that, you know, because this was new technology, they were more frightened of it. But a lot of people had been working on mRNA vaccines for a long time and working on mRNA for other things. 
And one of the really nice things about mRNA is that it degrades, it falls apart. So you put that virus in, but you're never going to find it like weeks or months or years later because your body needs to have ways of getting rid of mRNA because your body's making mRNA all the time so that it makes proteins for all the things your cells need to do to function. And if it couldn't get rid of the old mRNA, you would always be making, anytime you made a protein, you would keep making it. So the body is very efficient at breaking down mRNA. So like, I think people worry we're going to inject this thing and it's going to be there forever, but you're not going to be able to find any vaccine particles in your body after a short period of time. Right. And when you said before that we put the virus in the body, you meant the mRNA from the virus. I mean, no one got the virus yeah. injected. Yeah. It's just a little piece Correct. of mRNA. I mean, you, there was no virus that was going into anybody during this, uh, for this Nobody vaccine. Nobody getting virus injected. The way we always looked at vaccines in pregnancy was basically we divided them into two groups. There was the kind that you mentioned before, which was this live attenuated virus, which is basically, it is virus it's alive, so to speak, but it's changed so that it wouldn't give, make someone sick. Like the measles is one of those. So we inject the measles vaccine. It is something that's live, but it's not going to make them sick with the measles versus the other kind, which was, you can either think of it as not the virus at all, whether it's just a protein from the virus, sort of like we said with the hepatitis B, sometimes something called a toxoid, which is something that the virus produces. But basically that other kind where there's nothing live going in, and in pregnancy, we generally would only give the second kind versus the first kind. I mean, we would not give the live attenuated viruses. So that would be like measles, rubella, chickenpox, or varicella. And, and why is it that we wouldn't give the live ones in pregnancy? So it's really about theoretical risk. Those vaccines are live. They um, are supposed to be designed so they can't cause disease, but there's always concern like, what if theoretically they got to the fetus and caused the problems that those diseases cause? So rubella, German measles, causes a very specific um, syndrome, which is very, very bad for a fetus and can cause stillbirth, but also can cause children to be born with multiple birth defects. So when you're putting something in and you're like, well, it's not going to make someone really sick, but maybe it'll make a little something happen. There's this theoretic concern that if it gets to the fetus at just the right time, maybe there'll be a little bit of congenital rubella system, syndrome. So, you know, that's the concern. Practically, there has never been a case of congenital infection from a vaccine. And people have inadvertently been vaccinated in the first trimester of pregnancy, maybe before they knew they were pregnant. And we don't recommend that people terminate pregnancies in that situation. There are vaccine registries for when that happens. And it's actually pretty safe. But just because of the theoretic risk, we don't recommend live vaccines in pregnancy. Right. So, I mean, we don't do it because the thought is it's not a situation where you sort of need 
to do it. And so we avoid it because of the, like you said, theoretical, very minuscule risk. But again, it's never actually been shown to be a problem. And there's so many cases of people who have been vaccinated with these when they're pregnant that in fact, you could make the opposite conclusion that there's very good data that it is safe. But since like it's not common that you would need to do it, we don't give those vaccines uh, in pregnancy. But again, it's really important to realize that they're not known to be problematic. In fact, all the data shows they're safe. We just do it to be like as we as we've been saying in the past couple of years, abundance of caution. We're just doing abundance of caution here with those. Before I said risk and benefits because your risk of getting exposed to rubella in this country is very low mm-hmm. or practically zero. There's really not a benefit to target pregnancy as a time to get vaccinated. Right, exactly. The other vaccines, which again, there isn't live virus going in. The safety is both assumed, but then there's also data, you know, sort of empiric data supporting it. And what would be the principles? Like, What would be the reasons you would specifically vaccinate someone in pregnancy? Like, why would someone be recommended you should get vaccine A or B or C while you're pregnant specifically, as opposed to before or after? So we specifically recommend influenza vaccine in pregnancy in any trimester, like whenever the vaccine comes out, we recommend vaccinating pregnant women. There's been a lot of safety data. We don't know of harm from the influenza vaccine. And there's tremendous benefit. Pregnant women, it's a little bit like coronavirus. Pregnant women are more likely to get sick from influenza than their age-matched peers who aren't pregnant, they're more likely to end up in an intensive care unit, they're more likely to need to be intubated, and they're more likely to die. Like pregnant women sometimes die of influenza. So we recommend influenza vaccine to protect the woman herself, but we also recommend it to protect the baby because when we vaccinate someone, they make an immune response, and those antibodies cross the placenta, they get to the fetus, and when the baby is born, the baby gets passive immunization. The baby still has the maternal antibodies for the first few months of life, and those can protect the baby if the baby is exposed. And there have been pretty significant studies done showing that Women who get vaccinated against influenza in pregnancy, their children are less likely to be hospitalized for respiratory illnesses in the first six months of life. Yeah, and I think that that's a really important point that when we recommend vaccination in pregnancy, it's either for both or one of these two reasons. One is the mother's health herself, uh, and the other one is the baby's health. And so influenza or flu happens to be for both of them. And I think with, you know, COVID, a lot of people got very interested in the idea of getting vaccinated to protect their babies. And it's true that women who are vaccinated for COVID or women who get COVID when they're pregnant, their babies are born with some antibodies to COVID. And so I think the principle is true, but the difference is COVID does not seem to be so dangerous for newborns, whereas flu can be very dangerous for newborns. Like you do not want your newborn getting the flu. And so if you look at influenza vaccine on the baby side, it's much more 
uh, quote unquote, valuable than potentially the COVID vaccine for the baby. So the COVID vaccine is mostly recommended for the mother's health, not so much for the baby's health, just because it doesn't seem to make a huge difference for the baby. Right. I mean, there have been a handful of cases of newborns, you know, getting hospitalized with COVID, you know, getting symptoms, getting sick, but that is more rare. And some of it is probably that nobody's really taking their babies out anymore and everyone is wearing masks. And so fewer kids are getting it, uh, getting coronavirus than other viral illnesses. But also there seems to be a difference in the way children respond to coronavirus than adults. Right. So we spoke a little bit specifically about the influenza vaccine, and there are two types of influenza vaccine. And so when we're talking about it. We're talking about the one that's injected, like the one people think about as a vaccine, the one that's put in your arm or whatever it is, because that's the one that's not live. But there is a form of the vaccine that we don't give to pregnant women that is the live one, and that's the nasal spray, correct? Correct. So we give inactivated influenza vaccine. The nasal spray, the idea is you, it works in theory the same way that influenza works. Like it goes up your nose and then you're making this mucosal immune response. But because that does depend on virus reproducing, replicating, we don't use that in pregnancy. Right. And it's the, also unpleasant. <laughs> like you think you don't like needles, that flu <laughs> Like, it's like at the beginning when you were doing the COVID test, sticking that thing into your brain. Yeah. <laughs> and the other thing you mentioned very specifically is that it can be given in any trimester, meaning it's well known that the influenza vaccine does not cause birth defects. That would be the only reason to avoid something in the first trimester as opposed to the second or third that it would cause either a birth defect because that's when the baby's being formed or a miscarriage and it does not cause either. Uh, so like you said, it's not good to get the flu no matter what trimester you're in. And so if flu season's around and it's available, it's recommended no matter where you are in pregnancy. Definitely benefits the mother and it benefits the baby as well. So that's influenza vaccine and that's recommended. The next one I think is pretty much universally recommended in pregnancy is the Tdap vaccine. So what's the Tdap vaccine? So the Tdap vaccine protects you against tetanus diphtheria. And the reason we're recommending it in pregnancy is really pertussis. So pertussis is whooping cough. If you were to get pertussis, you would be very unhappy. Pertussis makes people cough and cough and cough. It makes people miserable. But this is a vaccine we're not giving for the mother, like we don't want anyone to cough and cough and cough, but we're really giving it for the baby. When you get pertussis itself, you cough, you're unhappy, you can't sleep, it lasts forever. It can last for weeks and you're unhappy. But if a newborn gets pertussis, because it causes inflammation in the airways and that's why people cough. But a newborn, if their airways are so small, they can actually die of whooping cough, or they could have to get hospitalized from whooping cough. And so the recommendation to vaccinate pregnant women was really to prevent morbidity of pertussis in the first few months of life. Babies get their first pertussis vaccine at two months, and until then, they are um, susceptible. And so the idea of vaccinating pregnant women in the third trimester is really to provide 
passive immunity to the baby. Right. And I think there's is a lot of interesting points there in that Tdap, T-D-A-P. Uh, it's an acronym. T is tetanus, D is diphtheria, A is and, and P is pertussis or whooping cough. The reason we give Tdap as opposed to P is they're just made together, right? They're they're just linked. I don't think you can, I don't even know if you can get pertussis vaccine alone. Can you? I don't even I don't know of it. That's not a thing. Right. And the truth is, like, you know, many of us, you know, pediatricians are very good at vaccinating people. Adult doctors are traditionally less good at vaccinating people. So you're supposed to get a tetanus vaccine every 10 years, and that's the vaccine. It protects you if you step on the rusty nail, that thing your mother, you know, always told you to wear shoes so nothing bad would happen. You get the tetanus vaccine to protect you from organisms that live in the dirt. And you're supposed to get that every 10 years. Most of us stop getting vaccinated when we stop seeing a pediatrician. And so, you know, for many women, getting that tetanus booster is just updating their vaccines. Right. In terms of that, two interesting points. Number one is, yes, a lot of people, especially in their first pregnancy, when they get that Tdap vaccine, they were due for it anyway, so it's perfectly fine. And also, let's say their partner, they're like, well, should I get the Tdap vaccine? I'll say, well, you're not going to be pregnant, so you're not going to give any passive immunity to the baby. But if you're due for one, you should get one. But what happens is if they have a second kid, so it's a year and a half, two years, three years later, she's like, why am I getting vaccinated again? I just got this two years ago. I'm saying, right, because we're not giving it for you. Like, you don't need another Tdap vaccine for your own health, but this is a new baby, and that baby's not going to get any passive immunity unless we vaccinate you while you're pregnant. You need that boost of antibodies, not just the fact that they were there's some level swirling around. And so we revaccinate her in the next pregnancy, but the partner definitely does not need it. And the same is true. They're like, well, should I get my family members vaccinated? Usually I tell them, well, if they're due for one, they should get one anyways. But it's not that likely that someone's going to be walking around your baby with whooping cough and not know about it, right? It doesn't get passed like that because they'll be pretty ill. So if they're due for one, they should get it, but it's not typically worth fighting with them over it as opposed to maybe something like flu or COVID, which is a lot more contagious and people can have it and not know they have it and things like that. Pertussis is interesting. So for one thing, the Tdap, the A is actually acellular. Ah. Um, <laughs> and, I like and. It's easier. It's just easier. Acellular yeah, without cells. I assume yeah. you can um, edit this. The interesting <laughs> no, thing not, about no, we're not pertussis, editing it. I'm, I'm happy to be wrong. Okay. <laughs> the interesting thing about the pertussis vaccine is there used to be a vaccine that worked better. But the problem was it caused a lot of side effects and it could really make people sick. And so there's been this trade-off where now we use a vaccine that's less good, but because it's less good, we're recommending it more. Because I think people feel like vaccines happen, like they get approved and then nobody thinks about it. But in fact, people are constantly looking at the efficacy data of vaccines, and they're constantly looking at the safety data. And so, you know, at some point they were like, when they had this old pertussis vaccine, they were like, yeah, works great, but not worth the risk because there's now less pertussis. So now we've gone the other way where we have this trade-off. You might still get pertussis. It's less likely. Or it's really that it doesn't last as long. And that's why we need these boosters. But it's much safer. Right. And less side effects is also nice. Yes. Yeah, I mean, usually with these vaccines, I mean, COVID probably, the corona vaccine had more side effects than the other ones did. 
you know, flu vaccine and Tdap, you know, most people have no side effects, followed by maybe a sore arm for a day or two. And a few people will sort of feel a little flu-like for a day or two. Uh, it's not the virus itself. It's just the response. I think COVID was more higher percentage of people had symptoms and they tended to be a little more severe. I mean, some people got really sick from the COVID vaccine or had really bad arm pain. That's pretty unusual for the flu and for Tdap, I would say. Really, really, really unusual to have severe side effects from one of those. So we covered flu, which is recommended. We covered Tdap, which is recommended. Again, that's the third trimester because we're really giving for the baby. So you wouldn't give it, you could give it in the first trimester if someone needed it. Uh, it's safe, but we don't strategically give it until the third trimester because again, it's it's specifically for the baby. COVID vaccine we mentioned. We mentioned not to get the live vaccine. So that's your MMR, which is measles, bumps, rubella, uh, and also varicella, which is chicken pox. So we don't give those in pregnancy. Those are the more common vaccines. What are the other vaccines some people might be recommended or might think about getting uh, and whether we can or can't do those in pregnancy? So there's hepatitis B vaccine. So certainly for people my age, I'm really old. <laughs> I didn't get hepatitis B vaccine as a child. At some point, they started recommending it as part of routine childhood vaccines. So most pregnant patients at this point should have gotten hepatitis B vaccine as children. So if they got their whole vaccine series, they shouldn't need it in pregnancy. If someone didn't get it as a child and we think they're going at high risk to be exposed to hepatitis B, then they should be vaccinated. And so the risk factors are if you have a family member um, who has hepatitis B or there's a high likelihood of you needing a blood transfusion or being exposed to people's blood, like I don't know, if you're having dialysis or if you're going to get a tattoo, people who have a history of recent sexually transmitted diseases or people who are IV drug abusers. Those are all risk factors for hepatitis B. And so if there's a chance you might get hepatitis B in pregnancy, you should be vaccinated because hepatitis B is transmissible to a newborn, usually at the time of birth. And that can cause long-term health problems. Like children who get hepatitis B at birth are at increased risk for things like liver cancer in life. And so that is not the gift we want to give our children. So, right. But again, most people are going to be vaccinated for hepatitis B already because they got it as children. Yes. And what about some other vaccines? Like there's one for pneumonia, for meningitis. I think those vaccines, it's really a matter of risk. Like if we think you're at high risk to be exposed to meningitis and you haven't gotten a meningococcal vaccine, then that's something you might want to get. It's really the meningitis, the pneumococcal vaccines, the recommendations are really to talk to your healthcare provider about the likelihood you're going to get the disease. There's no known or get exposed to the disease. There's no known risk for those vaccines, but there's limited safety data because usually we don't have reasons to be giving those vaccines in pregnancy. There are certain things like rabies vaccine, 
where it's certainly a good idea to give it if you were bit by a dog or a cat and there's a risk, but we don't generally give it prophylactically. So sometimes people come in, they're veterinary students, and they're like, should I get my rabies vaccine? And it like, you know, depends what they're likely to be doing. Yeah. My wife was attacked, ironically, by a fox last year, and uh, which is, it's a good thing my last name isn't, you know, rhinoceros or something, hippopotamus, but she was attacked by a fox and she got bit and she actually had to get rabies vaccine. It was crazy. So it happens. People are bit by wild animals periodically. And, you know, during the, I guess, pandemic, the, the foxes were going wild. And rabies is lethal. So, yeah. you know, yeah. It's worth getting the vaccine. Yeah, I think sometimes but that's a whole conversation. Yeah. yeah, yeah. I think sometimes these things come up if people either for leisure or for their work, they have to travel to places where there's certain diseases that are endemic. There's, you know, sort of the whole concept of travel medicine and what vaccines are you supposed to get that you wouldn't, you know, that you're not going to be exposed to if you're living in Cleveland, but you might be exposed to if you're going, you know, on safari or something like that. And, you know, those are unique and it's important to talk with your OB or with, you know, travel medicine doctor about A, should I be taking this trip in general? But B, if let's say you have to, or you're going to be moving to, you know, one of these places, let's say that has a, an endemic disease, should I get this vaccine? Should I not? And those are uh, more unique. But typically, if you're at risk for getting the disease, it's usually better to have the vaccine than the disease. That's usually the principle in this situation. Yes. So, you know, there's a couple of resources I wanted to go over that our listeners can use. One of them that you sent to me was just from the CDC, the Centers for Disease Control and Prevention. You know, you can Google, you know, CDC guidelines for vaccinating pregnant women, and they have a website and it's updated and they sort of go through each of the vaccines and what's recommended and what's not. And there's really good information on the CDC website. Like they do a good job at updating things for people, for both, you know, for regular folk, for doctors, nurses, whoever. So that's a good one. But also, tell us about your daughter's website. Oh, my daughter made a website. I didn't even know she knew how to make a website. It is <laughs> knowyourvaccines.org. I'm so excited about this, both because I think it's an amazing resource for patients and for people in the community, and also because my daughter made it. The thing she wanted to provide was information about what's in vaccines. So that's what the website was designed. She has information about all of the childhood vaccines and some adult vaccines. She's going to move on to travel vaccines. And there's a link for each one where you can look at the list of ingredients. And then she explains why those ingredients are in that vaccine. And then she provides some just general information about vaccination. And she tries to, she is not a physician. Tell us about her, where, where she is in life, just so people understand that, that your daughter's not like a PhD in immunology right now. Who's your daughter? My daughter, Samantha Ratner, is a senior at the University of Michigan. Go blue. And she is really interested in public health. And I think, you know, some of that has to do with being in college in the middle of the pandemic. And a lot of the things that I'm looking at guidelines for, like she and her roommates and the college, they're sort of figuring things out for themselves. And she was reading a lot, you know, certainly heard a lot about people having questions about things. And she thought there was a real need for a website that was not the CDC, was not your doctor, like something that was put together by 
someone without a medical education. So she sort of put in there the things that she need, had needed to look up that she wanted explained in a basic way and that, you know, things her friends were asking about. Yeah, it's really terrific. Again, it's knowyourvaccines.org. That's one word and know with a K-N-O-W. And it's it's just really, it's user-friendly. It's easy to go through. It's not convoluted. You know, the font is good. The You know, the links are easy. Some websites are just a disaster to try to navigate, but this is really straightforward and interesting and helpful. And Go Sam. Strong work. Really impressive. Look at you. Your progeny are taking your, you know, taking the mantle from you. I love it. That is what we want. (laughs) (laughs) We want to be able to retire one day. Yeah. Hey, if there's anyone out there who wants to, you know, uh, buy her uh, website and, you know, monetize this for her, you know, so she can pay for grad school, that'd be pretty cool. So, but it's really, no, seriously, it's a great website for people who are looking for more information on vaccines. That's not the CDC. Just another resource to look at. Can I talk about one more thing? Yeah. There is this horrible COVID thing called COVID placentitis, which uh-huh. is like inflammation in the placenta. Right. And that has been associated with stillbirth. And, you know, it's something that scares us as providers. It's rare, but it happens. And someone did this really, really nice study where they looked at patients who had been vaccinated because we always worry that, you know, these vaccines are mimicking disease. And, you know, what if the vaccines cause a problem? And someone took a cohort of patients who had had not had the vaccine in pregnancy and a cohort of patients who had had the vaccine in pregnancy, and they did not see any evidence of any differences in the placentas in women who had gotten vaccinated. And so in addition to the fact that We have data on newborns because there are registries that are collecting that. It's nice to see that the placentas are doing fine when patients are vaccinated. Love it. Thank you for that. Awesome. All right, Gelber. Now now we will say goodbye. Sherry, Gelber, thank you so much for coming on the podcast, talking about vaccines. Hopefully this will be really helpful for pregnant women and also just for everyone out there about vaccines in general and why they're important, why they're recommended, and the fact that we keep continuing to gather and to report all the safety data that people should be really reassured that these are not just being like let out into the public without any sort of oversight. There's a lot, a lot of uh, data that goes into this. Thank you for coming on the podcast. Okay. I, re- I really appreciate it. We'll have you again. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Healthful Woman podcast. To learn more about our podcast, please visit our website at www.healthfulwoman.com. That's H-E-A-L-T-H-F-U-L-W-O-M-A-N.com. If you have any questions about this podcast or any other topic you would like us to address, please feel free to email us at hw at healthfulwoman.com. Have a great day. The information discussed in Healthful Woman is intended for educational uses only. It does not replace medical care from your physician. Healthful Woman is meant to expand your knowledge of women's health and does not replace ongoing care from your regular physician or gynecologist. We encourage you to speak with your doctor about specific diagnoses and treatment options for an effective treatment plan. Paid sponsors of the podcast are not involved in the creation of the podcast or any of the content. Support for our sponsors should not be interpreted as medical advice from the podcast, the host, or the guests.